You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Should be up on the screen. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything to him under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, we do have redemptional kids for ages two to four. So if that would serve you this morning, you can go right across the hallway. Thank you, those who are serving this morning and redemptional kids. And I'll add my happy Mother's Day is as well. So thank you, mothers. All right. We are in our sermon series entitled God Has Spoken. God has spoken, and He continues to speak through His Word. I had a, I had a thought earlier this week. Um, the book of Hebrews is making an argument that God has spoken supremely through His Son. You've heard that from me the past several weeks. And sometimes when an argument is made, there, there is an order or um, a particular flow to an argument. Talk to any lawyer, they're going to think logically. So when I prepare a sermon, I remind myself of where I've been and uh, where I'm going. And I want you to realize that as well. While each sermon may, may seem independent from all the other sermons, you've got to remind yourself it's connected, especially as we go through books of the Bible. It's the way we, it's one of our normative practices here at Redemptional Church. I'm telling you this because if you've missed a, a particular sermon, it's always good to go back, maybe listen to it, and it helps kind of put some puzzle pieces together. Um, as we journey through the book of Hebrews, my, my hope is that when we're at the end of this journey, um, Man, not only do you love what God is saying through the book of Hebrews, but you kind of get the big picture and then you get the granular details. So on Thursday evening, uh, I told Rob Lane, he and I met at Smoky Row, um, I expressed the difficulty of interpreting this passage. I'll explain the reasons why in a few, few minutes, but my admission reminds me that we're all still wrestling with God's Word. Like, I've been a Christian for 20 years, 20 plus years, right? Reading my Bible, and I'm still wrestling. <laughs> um, and I'll said this, it is good that we don't have it all figured out. Listen, I, I have my opinions. I have my theological convictions. Anyone who's been around me for longer than a cup of coffee figures that out right quick. <laughs> this guy has opinions. But sometimes uh, it's good to be humbled. Humility is never a bad thing. 
So uh, God utterly humbled me as I wrestled with his word throughout, throughout the week. And, and if I'm being really frank, I'm still wrestling, even as I preach. <laughs> like, part of me is like, all right, we're going to go preach the word. You've, you've heard me enough where I'm just like, I'm just, I let it loose. It's like golf, grip it and rip it. Usually goes the wrong way, but you get the, you get the idea. There's a, like, now it's kind of like, can I just go hide behind here? <laughs> like, I'm still wrestling. And that has to be a good thing. So that's my admission to you and maybe an encouragement for you as you continue to read your Bible and continue to wrestle with God's Word. So today, more than most days, maybe more than any day that I've preached up to this point, I need to pray for God's help as we dig in. So we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, as I've said, now I pray. And as you and your sovereignty know, I'm in tremendous need. I have words on a page, and they remain words on a page without the work of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, help me to be faithful, even in the midst of wrestling. The goal is to be faithful to what you have said and what you continue to say. So we come underneath the authority of your word and entrust that the Spirit is indeed at work and will minister to all of us this morning. Pray that in the only name that we can pray and is worthy of prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to let me start with a question that makes me very uncomfortable <laughs> to ask. <laughs> it's this. Uh, what is your destiny? I feel a bit uneasy asking the question for a lot of particular reasons. One, in, in this climate of self-help gurus and prosperity gospel preachers, uh, they aim to tell you how to reach your destiny, to fulfill your potential as we read books called... Uh, Living your best life now. Right? You get a lot of that. Biblical categories are wrongly used to see you achieve some destiny. Right? But even with all the abuse and messaging, books, conferences, and sermons, the question I actually think is still relevant. I think the question is relevant for several reasons. First, a reason why self-help gurus and prosperity preachers are so popular is that human beings are really trying to understand their destiny. <laughs> like, right? Like, what, what is God's purpose for me? What am I meant to do? Things like, we use that, we articulate things like that all the time. Even in my mid-40s, it's like, what is my destiny? <laughs> been a pastor for so long, been a Christian for so long, and I'm still asking the question. So we have that, but we also live in an age of so much confusion in particular. I'll point out moral confusion, which is at its maximum. It seems like we're at a maximum moral confusion in our culture until tomorrow. <laughs> like, take for example, uh, gender, right? I looked up on sexualdiversity.com that there are now 105 different genders, supposedly, right? Air quotes. 105. Like, you, don't, you don't think that doesn't cause confusion about how we think about destiny and what God would have for me or however you want to articulate that? We've gone from 2 to 105 in like five minutes. 
That's crazy. So I'm not surprised there's people just seeking and asking that question in light of what's within us and the confusion that exists. Sure, you can be a part of a, a local community. You can be a person of faith. But even when someone asks you, what is your destiny? The question is actually individualized, which leads to an answer that's all about me, all about you, right? So even with the confusion that exists and the hyper-focus on the self, people continue to ask, perhaps now more than ever, what is your destiny? This morning, I'm not here to tell you uh, what to do with the rest of your life. I'm not here to tell you what like, profession you should pursue, but I want to show you the foundation to build from. Last week, we saw from Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4, that Christians need to pay attention to their salvation. That was the, the main thrust of Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. There is a danger in drifting away from God, like a, like a boat that is not controlled by the rudder, that, that small rudder underneath the boat, and the slightest wind will cause that boat to drift away. Just the slightest wind. It seems that the author of Hebrews continues to build out a reason why God's people need to take care of their faith this morning. We read in verse 3 that the Lord preached the message of salvation and then he entrusted his disciples to carry forward the message. And accompanying the preaching of the gospel, God is at work. We read in verse 4 of Hebrews 2 of giving gifts. There's signs and wonders and miracles. And then from verse 4 to verse 5, we have this. We plainly read, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So we talked about the angels two weeks ago. It seemed like we had this exhortation, and now we're back to the angels in verse 5. The point is that God does not warn the angels not to drift from faith. And God did not create the world here and in the future for the angels to rule. It seems that verse 5 is speaking about the second advent of Jesus Christ. Right? It seems to have this future eschatological sense in verse 5. The author of Hebrews is saying, Do not drift. Stay faithful until the end because there will be a day when the angels will be judged by God's image bearers. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3. That's mind-blowing. We're going to judge angels. When was the last time that thought went through the brain, you know? Wow. So, like I said, there's an eschatological sense in verse 5. The future is in view. I think that has implications for our present, but the future is in view in verse 5. We also see the pecking order of creation. We know that Jesus is Lord, who is not created. He's eternal. And then there will be a day when men and women are next in line, and then the angels, and then the rest of God's creation. The creation order helps us to put into context what we read in verses 6, 7, and 8. So I'm going to go there right now. We read in God's Word. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? or the Son of Man, that you care for Him. You have made Him, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything 
in subjection under his feet. Now, I find it a a bit comical that the lead-in to quoting Psalm 8, which is what is being quoted here, is somewhere in the Bible it says, like I'm kind of like, where? (laughs) Can't you tell me where? Who who wrote it? (laughs) I'm just somewhere in the Bible. And we do that all the time, though. Like I read in my Old Testament the other day, but we don't specifically cite. So I'm not really put off by that. I just find that amusing. Now, here is where questions arise, though. Is Psalm 8 being quoted to formulate the case that Christ is the one who was made lower than the angels for a short time? For example, Philippians 2 comes to mind when I, when I read that particular verse. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He was made low, right? That's what's being said here. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we read Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 8, in light of the passage like Philippians 2, it is easy to see how we could be talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you interpret Psalm 8 as a messianic psalm, then you can see how the book of Hebrews picks up on that theme to say that everything is in submission to Christ. Like That would be the point of the passage. Everything, all things, are in submission to Christ. They're in submission to Christ because of His incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. The majority of the early church fathers, so think 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, took this interpretation. They took this interpretation. And because my studies throughout the year was just soaking in the early church fathers, when I came to Hebrews 2, verses 6, 7, and 8, that's how I initially interpreted it. I'm like, messianic psalm, this is all about Jesus. And then throughout this last week, and this is where my mind is just like, oh. Throughout this last week, as I continued to study, I actually began to question my initial assumption. All modern-day scholars interpret this passage very differently. I was surprised to find out that the majority of 21st century scholars read Psalm 8 and conclude that it is about God's vision for men and women. Some say the author of Hebrews picks up on this theme by exhorting God's people to not drift and then pivots to say there will be a day when God will crown man and woman, his, his people, with glory and honor. So, you'd imagine, you know, Wednesday, Thursday-ish, here I am, just praying, pouring over God's Word, getting into the Greek language, going back to the Old Testament, trying to interpret the Old Testament original language, and I'm like, we got ourselves an old-fashioned standoff. <laughs> what do I do? What do we do? If you were having a Bible study with four to five people and you came to this passage, how would you interpret it? Right? What do you do? What is the faithful interpretation of this passage? Here are a few thoughts before I give my conclusion. There are good arguments on both sides, and I want to encourage all of you to dig into God's Word and try to discern what is God saying here. That's a good thing. Be like the Bereans. 
as we read in Acts 17. Get into God's Word. There are times when we approach a passage in God's Word and we're left wondering what to think. Do not let that bother you at all. But allow the wondering and the questions to be a catalyst to further study. Allow it to be a catalyst. We all get to that point where we read that verse, just like I read this verse throughout this last week, and we can allow it to be a catalyst to dig in to what God has said and what he continues to say. Now, here's how I approach the use of Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2. Is it about Christ or is this about God's image bearers, men and women? My answer is yes and yes. And you're like, ah, you cheater. <laughs> no, it's, it's sincerely yes and yes. It seems to me that the original context of Psalm 8 is focused squarely on God's relationship with man. And that has, has implications, which I'll talk about here in a moment. God is invested in his creation, with man being the crown jewel of his creation. We should not be shocked to read in the Bible about God's care for humanity. Psalm 8 can inform God's vision for your life. Angels were not created by God to rule over this world. Man and woman have been called by God to rule over this world. Obviously under the authority of Christ. When we read Psalm 8 in the book of Hebrews, the original interpretation is not jettisoned. But I think an additional layer is given to us. The author of Hebrews is making a direct connection between the supremacy of Christ over all things, over the angels, as we're going to see down the road, the great high priest, the greatest sacrifice, so the, the supremacy of Christ over all things, and Christ's relationship with the one he has redeemed. Here's how... Uh, one theologian, Thomas Schreiner, explains the connection. I found this particular quote helpful. He says this, Rule over the world hasn't been given to the angels. Like that, Still, that truth just boggles my mind And as I think about who I am. Who am I, O oh God? <laughs> it seems like the angels should be ruling, but they're not. And thus, human beings will only reach their destiny if they belong to Jesus as the Son of Man. Psalm 8 clearly attests that rule has been given to human beings instead of angels. The psalmist reflects on the creation narrative. Human beings are lower than the angels, but they are destined for glory and honor. Everything in creation is to be subject to human beings. I mean, if, if he's right, if Schreiner's right, there are a lot of implications for our lives, truly. Like for the record, I want Schreiner to pull on that Christological thread even more, but I think he and I are playing the same game, we're on the same field, and we're on the same team. A Christian's destiny is entirely connected to Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who entrusts his image bearers to take dominion over creation. I want to also add another point that is the thread holding together verses 5 to 9. The emphasis of this passage, whether it's about man or Christ, is submission. Submission. You know, it's one of those words that has become a dirty word in culture that we need to redeem as Christians, the word submission. 
Four times the word subjection shows up in the ESV translation, which is consistent with the original Greek language. The idea is that one object is submitting to another object. But here's the difference between all things being submitted to Christ and the creation submitting to man. All things submit to Christ. Period. End of story. We don't got to work at that. That's a clear statement. There is no need to discuss that further. All things submit to Christ. However, men and women need to pursue the submission of creation. Let's go back to Psalm 8 for a moment. I have a few more points that I need to sort out to help us understand what's going on in Hebrews 2. Why does David, the author of Psalm 8, imply that human beings are destined to rule the world? Answer, he knows his Bible. He knows Genesis 1. After we read that man and woman are made in God's likeness and image, it says in Genesis 1, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, verse 30, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Pretty all-encompassing. I think David, who wrote Psalm 8, has Genesis 1 squarely on the mind. So now that you've read Genesis 1, kind of pulling, the, pulling together some threads here, Genesis 1, Psalm 8, now Hebrews 2. Now that you've read Psalm, uh, Genesis 1, let's go to Psalm 8. We read in verse 1, O Lord, o, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Like if I just pause there, we just got one massive doxological statement. It is, it is David praising God. He is bringing glory to God because of who God is. Even infants know about the glory of God. And then we, here's what we read in Hebrews 2, which is, which is here in Psalm 8. What is a man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Again, you see the, the juxtaposition between the one who reigns over all things, who deserves honor and glory, God. And then David shifts gears to talk about man. It's like, praise you, O Lord, and then how are you even mindful of me, O God? Me, a sinner. Perhaps it's not necessary to quote the entire psalm, but I can't help, my, help myself because it only reinforces a point that I'm making about dominion. It is truly stunning when you consider all the fact patterns of this passage. That dominion language pops up again. Psalm 8, verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field. You just hear Genesis 1 again. The birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
What we read in Genesis 1 is a creation ordinance. Before the fall, before the giving of the law, God created man and woman with specific purpose. And one of the purposes is to have dominion over creation. In a very real sense, we are to rule. We don't like talking about that. It seems haughty, and I get that, but I'm not going to shift away from what is plainly here in Scripture. We're to rule. I'll make the Christological connection in a moment, but first, I want to correct the record of, of what is, I think, contemporary Christian thought. Far too often, we hear that uh, we're supposed to live for our next life, heaven, right? Now, on the one hand, that is true. But that kind of statement oftentimes is made with a disregard for the present. Your destiny is wrapped up in the present with a longing for the return of Christ, right? With a longing to be with Jesus. Do not disregard the areas of your life. God has called you to exert dominion right now. One of the points of Psalm 8 is that God does care for man and woman. God does care about your vocation. God does care about how fathers lead their families and how fathers and mothers disciple their children. God does care for you mothers as you've labored day over day, week over week, week, whether it be working or investing in your home and the kids. God does care. God does care about the garden that you are cultivating or that house project you are working on. God deeply cares about his people. And that is the humbling thing because we can ask the question with David, how are you even mindful of me? And yet God does care. So that question in Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2 is rhetorical. God does care. God is thoroughly invested in man and woman. He wants us to own responsibility of stewarding His creation. Remove from your mind the thought that this world can just burn. Just just give me heaven. Right? It might be true that there are small or large fires, (laughs) but you have the responsibility to cultivate. The responsibility to cultivate. You have a home to exert dominion over. You have a job to steward. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, God's people are to live as kingdom people. You live in the present in light of the future. We just don't give up on the present because of the future. We live in light of what's to come. Heaven is our present reality perfected because of Christ. In heaven, our devotion and worship of Christ will be without the stain of sin. But until that day... We are to take dominion over God's creation. God has given us authority that the angels do not have. That is part of our destiny. That is part of our destiny. The angels, well, they minister to us. Not worship us, see, a couple weeks ago. They minister to us. That is part of their role in God's created order. The author of Hebrews, I think, understands this interpretation and I think is intentionally sitting on the fence. On one side of the fence is the call to not drift and take dominion, right? On the other side of the fence is the ultimate reason why God's people can be kept from drifting and take dominion over creation, right? The other side of that fence is Christ. 
the author of Hebrews pivots away from Psalm 8 and says, Now I'm putting everything in subjection, that word also for submission to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In this present life, man and woman have been made a little lower than the angels, but that will change. It will change because Christ was made lower than the angels. Back to Philippians 2, right? Because of the incarnation, life, suffering, and crucifixion of Jesus, God's people have grace. That's what we read in verse 9. God's people know that while this physical body may die, Christ has actually conquered death. Therefore, all of God's people will see their bodies redeemed and renewed Oh, one day. The author of Hebrews will revisit this theme in Hebrews 12. The theme of believing in what you do not physically see. That's important. If Jesus is king over the entire creation, why does it seem like many aspects of this creation are not in submission to King Jesus? Right? If the claim is everything's in submission to Jesus, and we look out and we're like, I got questions, how do we reconcile that? So I do understand why people say the world is burning to the ground because they see a lot of fire and a lot of smoke. <laughs> Yet we're called to affirm that Jesus is king and all things are under his lordship. You will hear more of this next week from Psalm 110. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. King Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The enemies of King Jesus are a footstool underneath his feet. Please note that evil, sin, and the enemies of God still remain, but they are ultimately under the feet of Christ. As I was thinking about this passage, I realized there's like a, this is tension here. The fires we see with our eyes right, in the lordship of Jesus Christ. The mass confusion within our culture, yet Jesus is Lord over it all. So allow me to give kind of an agricultural example. There's a practice by some farmers who burn their fields after the harvest. I had to look this up. It took me down the rabbit hole of agriculture. Now, I don't think this is a popular practice. I don't see many burning fields as I drive down the interstate or whatever. But it's been used. The reason why... Some farmers will burn the field is to purify the soil. When the fields are burned, stubble is done away with, along with uh, any bacteria or fungus. Any residues are just burned off. There's also a belief that burning the land makes the field easier to plow in the spring. I'll, resident farmers, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know. Now, I'm not an expert, but for a moment, let's just assume that's good practice. When we see a fire, we think danger. We think of destruction. But there are also times when a fire is meant to purify. All the fires we see throughout the world ultimately serve the purposes of God. We might not understand why or how, but God's will is always being done. We may not see that everything is in submission to Christ, but we need to believe that everything is in submission to Christ. 
And Christ entrusts his people, albeit God's people are not perfect. Sin remains. Christ entrusts God's people to subdue and submit creation to the glory of God. So I think my two main points about Hebrews 2 verses 5 to 9 may be not clear in your head. They became more clear in my head at least. And I think they're connected. Number one, Christ is king. Christ is king. And number two, God has called his people to take dominion over creation. As I've said, taking dominion is the destiny of God's people. But the question is, why do Christians not receive their God-given destiny? Why? There's several reasons why. Number one, we've lost a love for cultivating what God gives. Like, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too, by the way. It's like, it's easier to place the phone call to get the pizza delivered than to get all the products and make it yourself, right? We, we just want things given to us. And when, when I just come over to your house and give you the pizza, which is fine, it is fine, but you have no sense of cultivating. None. And that's our entire culture, right? It's just a microwave culture. Whatever is quick and easy, and sometimes that's helpful. I get it. But we also got to see some of the negative effects. We've, we've lost the sense of cultivating something. So I think that's a reality. Two, God's people tend to focus on the wrong goals. Like, your destiny is not to take over the world. That's not it at all. Like, I've seen youth group names called, like, world changers or whatever. No. I just don't get that. That is not the goal. Your destiny is to take dominion over the areas of your your life that are directly in front of you. Let Christ take over the world for Christ. He's done a good job of that. Ever since a couple backwoods country boys from the first century, and now we have billions of people worshiping Christ throughout the world. Christ can do that for himself. We need to focus and cultivate and take dominion over the things that are right in front of us for the glory of God. Third, third reason why we don't walk out our God-given destiny is that we have not recognized and received the authority given to us by Christ. As Christians, we rightly love to bask in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes and amen. We are beneficiaries of so many blessings because of the gospel. But we often stop there. We thank God for being forgiven of sins and we praise our Lord for eternal life, but we tend to coast between now and eternity. And I would say, along with Psalm 8 via Hebrews 2, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. Fourth, fourth reason why Christ might why Christians might misunderstand their destiny is that we disconnect it from Christ himself. The moment Christ is disconnected from destiny is the moment you cannot identify God's mandate to take dominion over his creation. Christ is the outlet in which we must always stay plugged into. Your destiny, Christian, is to love your Lord and Savior. Yes and amen. Love your neighbor. Yes and amen. And it is to take dominion over all the areas of your life that Christ has entrusted you with. Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. I have no doubt that uh, later tonight, maybe tomorrow, I'll question part of what I said. 
Two truths are at the same time. You can strive to be faithful and still wrestle with God's word. That's not a bad thing. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.